Dear Lord, we thank You so much for this time together today. Thank You for uh, the salvation that You've offered. God, I pray if there's one here today that does not know You, that today would be the day that they're drawn to You. That they would experience You in a real and personal way. That they would confess their sin, their need for You. And that they would open their heart up and place their trust in what You have done upon the cross for them. So God, as we celebrate this time, we give You worship, we give You praise. Lord, as we investigate this morning the real meaning of life. In Your name I pray, dear Jesus. Amen. Yes, you can go home and say that on the first Sunday of the year, you watched Monty Python in church. Um, what in the world? You know, the crazy thing about that particular thought is that uh, Monty Python is asking really a really great question, a question that when answered gives us the framework of which we can hang goals and dreams and plans and choices and expectations for the new year, right? I mean, we can answer that question. Uh, you got any expectations for 2013? Or are you just going to kind of kick it in neutral and see how it goes? I mean, you're, you're expecting the sermon to kind of be in that flavor today, right? I mean, it's the first Sunday of the new year. I, we've had these discussions in my family this week. We've been talking about personal goals and expectations and our family's goals and expectations. And we're just kind of walking through that individually and, and talking about that as a family. And it's fun to do that with little kids. Uh, as a matter of fact, my three-year-old Levi has expressed to our family that one of his expectations, one of his goals for 2013 is that he drink more soda. And so there you go. Um, but I, did you, did you accomplish everything that was on the 2012 list? Did you even have a list? Did you lose the list halfway through January? Right. Um, when you think about what happened last year, did it meet your expectations or did it fall short? Maybe because of choices that were made, maybe because of economy, maybe because of lack of money, because of lack of time. I can't think of a better book to go to when we think about time than the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to jump in today. So feel free to grab your copy of the scripture. And we have not said this recently, I don't think, in this service. But one way that you can follow along with us is to actually go to YouVersion. It's an app uh, that is out. It's not... It's not, uh, you, let's see, there's another one that's AT&T's. It's not that one, right? This is Y-O-U, okay, Y-O-U version. And this is a Bible app that is on your phone if you are like an Apple person or whatever. And you open it up and you scroll down to live events. And when you put the zip code of the church, right, into that uh, that box there, it will pull up our notes along with all of the scriptures, or at least a good percentage of them that we use every Sunday, every weekend. So that's a way that you can kind of keep going with it and even take notes on your phone. That way, you know, you can actually be on your phone and uh, we won't, we'll just think you're being spiritual, right? Um, and so that, that works, that works quite well. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think that when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, certainly the traditional perspective here, the scholarly opinion is that it was written by Solomon when he was king near the end of his life. And crazy enough, Solomon and Monty Python have something in common. They're both asking the big question. Why in the world are we here? Because that's going to drive what we do with our time. 
What's the meaning of life? At one point in Solomon's thoughts, he reflects on a brief list of the realities of life that's found in chapter 3. If you're reading along on your phone or on the screens or in your copy of the scriptures in your hand there, it says there is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We think of Kevin Bacon Footloose. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent. A time to speak. A time to love. A time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And in this poem, what you'll notice is there are 14 opposites. That are there. It's actually a, a, a technique used in Hebrew poetry uh, to signify a sense of completion. There is a list here that really completes what we experience in this life. And the actual wording that's used in the book of Hebrew, in, in this book here, in the Hebrew language, is specific times. It's not just generalities. The focus that the writer is wanting us to get at is that there are specific times in our lives that we will experience. And as we open up the rest of God's love letter to us, what we know is that God is intimately aware of each one of these times and he is desiring to use them for his purposes, for his glory. Lots of experiences in life. Right. And I don't know about you, but at the end of the year, beginning of a new year, you just kind of reflect on, you know, just what's what's happened. You know, I, I was thinking about this this last month for me, some great times in my life this month. I mean, great times over the last month. I competed and finished my very first marathon. It was cool. It was a blast. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the favorite one of my favorite signs that uh, that was that was posted at the marathon this year was a sign that said uh, this is the worst Christmas parade I've ever watched. I just thought that was really funny. But um, it was just so much fun. And uh, and, and I'm thinking about Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve with our family. We, we went downtown. We served at uh, as a family together at the Cornerstone Church there in downtown Dallas. And we came back here um, a- after having a meal at one of my favorite places to eat, Taco Bueno. And um, and we went to uh, Carroll in the area with our family. And it was just a black. I mean, look back on that, followed by the next day of a white Christmas. If you were here, how cool was that? I mean, great times. I think of the not so great times over the last month in my life. Getting the medal, going upstairs to the Dallas Convention Center and receiving my finishing t-shirt, and then going into the men's room and passing out. Yes, I did. (laughs) I'm going to spare you the details. uh... Taking our Christmas tree out of the stand once it was fully assembled because we wanted to put a different Christmas tree skirt around it. Can I just tell you, you can't do that. Because I got it out of the stand and couldn't get it back in on Christmas Eve, disassembling the entire tree ornament by ornament while holding it with one hand at three o'clock in the morning and putting it back together. Yes, I was in the Christmas spirit. (laughs) On a more serious note, watching family and friends manage through the holidays this year with sickness and loss of employment and a variety of other really difficult circumstances that they are even in this moment walking through. You know, 
all these experiences add up to one life. One life. One ride. When I think ride, I think Six Flags, right? Can I just tell you right now, one of the best times to go to Six Flags is homeschool day in the spring. It is. Our family's there. You know, at least Shaley and I are there, and we're riding the roller coaster, and it is a blast. There's, I mean, it is, it is a low attendance time in the park because it's open to homeschoolers. Now, don't go and spoil it for us and show up because you're cheating, okay? Don't do that unless you're homeschooled. But um, we had a blast. I mean, we're getting in the roller coaster. We're great. And you know what's great about it? You get in there, and then you go, that was a really great one. We love that. You know, let's just get back in, in line again. Boom, we do it again, and then we do it again, and then we do it again. And it's so much fun, right? Because you can ride the ride again and again and again and again. And it's nothing like, like this life because we get one shot at this ride. And we get one shot at our kids' childhood. And we get one shot at our grandkids. We get one shot at 2013. What is that slice of your life going to look like this year? What's going to guide it? It is so easy to live for unimportant things. I've been journaling and writing and thinking about this. And, you know, in our, in our culture today, sometimes I think we just get way too consumed as adults, specifically, with playing to the crowd as opposed to playing on the court. You know, for many of us, and I'm going to step on some toes here, and, you know, but for, for, for many of us, it's like high school all over again. But instead of dressing to impress, it's Pinterest or Facebook or Twitter and how we use social media to portray the right image of ourselves or our family. And all of a sudden living in the moment with our kids and our spouse, it, it falls second place to our need to impress some socially contrived network of cloud of people that are out there somewhere. Is social media bad? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is so easy for us to miss the moment. And before we know it, we are sitting down at the dinner table with our family, maybe at the most once a week, filled with lots of conversations around the table, but with none face to face, but with other people. And I think if we're not real careful, birthday parties then become more about the cupcakes and less about the four-year-old. And we end up wasting moments we've been given on unimportant things, things that really won't matter in eternity, things that don't build our character, things that don't build our kids' character, things that really don't move us any closer to looking like or living like Jesus in a lost and dying and confused world. So we get really busy and exhausted and chaotic, and the room is really quiet right now. And I can't imagine how we could even cram one more thing into our schedules and then we have to think, but wait. Could it be that maybe, just maybe, it's the reality that our stated priorities and values are just way different from the, from the ones that we live out? And for many of us, although we feel really, really busy, the truth is our lives are more like this sippy cup in the hands of my one-year-old. Because this sippy cup right here was great for Levi two and a half years ago. It was great for him. It kept everything in, and the only way it got out was whenever he was drinking. But multiple times in the dishwasher and multiple times in kids' mouths, and when Lindley gets a hold of it now, if you're not careful, it is a shower. I mean, she is all over the place, right? Right? 
And I'm just thinking our lives get like that because we leak. We leak. We leak minutes all over the place. And I'm convinced that if we could just possibly grab a hold this morning of just where our lives are leaking, we might not feel like we don't have time to be and do who God's called us to be. But for a lot of us, we just kind of we're just going to keep on going business as usual and we're going to leak our lives away in things that are unimportant. I was evaluating my own life. Where am I leaking? And I realized, you know, one of the places that I leaked in 2012 was that I spent too much time in the news. It's one thing to be informed. It's another thing to be a political news junkie. And in a lot of ways, that's what I've become. And God grabbed my heart and said, you know what? There's other ways that you can spend that time. And so I'm reading in this, in our family time, in Ephesians 5, 16 and 17 this week, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil times. And it just hits me as husband and dad and friend and all the other hats that I wear. And, you know, you can you can call it having a plan or being intentional or setting boundaries or whatever. But if we don't move into this year ready to make the most of every opportunity, we have an enemy that would love to help us make the least of every opportunity. And he uses smartphones and TVs and friends, none of which are bad in and of themselves. And each one able to be used in a way that honors our king and makes much of him in this world. But every day of this year, you and I will be tempted to leak away minutes. All the while, our Savior is whispering in our ear, but make the most of every opportunity. Not just Sunday morning. Every opportunity. Because he sees the big picture and he knows how much time you and I have really left here on this earth to make an impact. And I don't know about you, but this year I want it to count. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to take the year I have for granted in my house this year. Here's what I think. I think there are going to be questions that get answered. There are going to be jokes that are going to be told. There are going to be costumes that are worn and balls that will be thrown. There will be conversations to be had. And I don't want to miss most of them because I would f- was focused on what or who is not even under my roof. God is going to give us everything that we need, all the time that we need to fulfill his plans for our lives in 2013. Do you believe that? You know, in First Thessalonians 5.24 Paul writes, God, who has called you, who has called you, who has called you in all the roles that you fill as father and dad and husband, as mother and wife and as friend and small group leader and small group attender and worshiper and neighbor and co-worker and employer and employee, all the hats that we wear in this room as he has called you in those roles, he is, scripture says, is faithful. 
in the calling he's placed upon your life. He is faithful. He will do it. He's going to give you all that you need. And maybe the prayer this weekend that we could pray is just the one that's found in Psalm 25 when David expresses this to the Lord. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Time. Thoughts about time. Our time on this ride is not our own. First Corinthians six reminds us of that. Paul says what he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. But the world says what you be independent. Matter of fact, you are entitled and it flies in the face of what is, is it is so contrary to what we understand whenever we move from creation of God's to child of his and we accept him as our savior and receive him as a master who has the rights over me and my time and all that is me. And the crazy thing about that is in that moment, in that transaction, I finally, for the first time in my life, can live life the way I was designed to live it. And then for some reason, but we choose to go backward. Our time on this life is also brief. James 4.14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I was thinking this week, that verse is so different depending on where you're reading it. I grew up in Houston. In Houston, they still kind of experience the greenhouse effect, right? I mean, it's just like mist is 24-7 there. You read that verse and it's like, ah, oh, missed here today, gone tomorrow. It's here all day long, whatever. In ancient Palestine, in the dry areas, if you're reading that verse, what are you thinking? Whoa, boom, it's here. Oh, there was a mist. Oh, no, that, was that a mist? No, I don't think so. His point, so incredibly poignant to the reader in that moment, here and gone. The time that we've been given on this ride is happening now. Let's not miss that. It's now. I think in school, what we do, most of us in the room, you know, fairly well educated, right? We get through high school, we get through college, we get through a master's degree, potentially, and a doctorate and all these things that we kind of pile onto our name. And it's like in the midst of all that, we kind of get in this mindset of, okay, I'm preparing to, I'm preparing to, I'm preparing to. And in a sense, we almost forget, you know what, I'm not just preparing to live, I'm actually living in that moment. And then we get kids and we have grandkids and we have, you know, we have, we have our lives that we're living out. And what, what happens in that moment? We think, well, whenever the kids leave, then whenever uh, we're empty then whenever you know and we keep on putting well whenever I finally retire then and what God wants us to remember I believe is the reality that he has a calling for you and for me right now our time on this ride is also at the center of a constant battle it's an unseen battle you know in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 what does Paul say he says for our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Yes, there is a very real unseen battle right now playing for your time and your choices and your life. There's also, though, a battle just between good and best. We can fill our lives with a, we could fill up these screens with a lot of great things that you and your family could be a part of this year. But are they the best? Are they what God wants you to spend 2013 in? Will those things make much of Him? Will they just be filler 
our time on this ride is really all that we need. Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He is faithful. The completion schedule is his. And the crazy thought there is, I, for some for some odd reason, we have this concept about God, although we don't necessarily speak it, that, you know, he's like creating the whole world and does it in 20, you know, sets the day up in 24 hour segments. And then he's like, oh, no, I should have done 29. They're never going to finish it. They're never going to get their stuff done. What in the world was I thinking? No, he knew exactly what he's thinking. He gives us exactly what we need. My list and your list of stuff may very well not get done by 10 o'clock tonight. But maybe we could agree as we leave with him that the moments of my day are going to end with a sense of contentment because he is in the business of perfecting me and my family and my friends and I am going to choose to live in this moment and make the most of it. So in our closing moments for the service, let's go back into the book and see what Solomon has to say about his own experiences. He already listed out all the different options, right? All those 14 opposites. And they gave us a pretty good blow by blow of, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, kind of like a Dallas Cowboys season. But earlier in the book, he explains how he went through all of those in this buffet of experiencing all that life had to offer. And what did he discover? Chapter two, verse one. I said to myself, go ahead and I will test you in pleasure with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness and about pleasure. What does this accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. It took them 13 years just to build his personal residence. It's quite a structure. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. Solomon had a thousand chariots and 20,000 horses that at a moment's notice he could pull together as an army to do anything that he wanted to. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve. I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had it all and he was empty. The Sultan of Brunei this week spent $100,000 to have Lindsay Lohan at his private New Year's Eve party. I mean, to have that kind of money to just drop it on having a celebrity show up and hang out with you for one night 
Can I just tell you, I certainly can't comprehend not only that choice, but that amount of money. And I'm not making fun of her. We should pray for her. But Solomon makes the Sultan of Brunei look like a pauper. He had everything. He had done everything. He had followed every possible path this world had to offer. And he was empty. And Solomon's words remind us of two rather uncomfortable truths I think we find in the New Testament. One, <laughs> our life's work may not be accepted in heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood or hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. There is coming a day, God says, that we will discover whether or not our lives really mattered for eternity. That's, a, that's an uncomfortable thought, potentially. Uncomfortable thought number two, best explained by an experience I had in Tennessee. We lived about 40 minutes outside of the Smoky Mountain National Forest. Amazing opportunity. Many weekends we would take our family there. If you know much about the area, Cades Cove is an area that we love to go frequent. We drive around that. And, you know, the cool thing about that is you could drive around, depending on the time of the year, see all different types of wildlife. We drove around it one time. What you would do is you would look for where cars were stopped because if they were stopped on the side of the road, then you knew they were looking at something, at birds, at, you know, at something, you know, deer, something that's in the, in the bush there, in the forest. There were a bunch of cars there one particular day. We pulled up behind them. I, I was like, oh, wait, look, they're not even in their cars. They're out of their cars. They're going into, there must be something really cool there. Let's go. And so Holly stays in with the boys and uh, Shaley and Riley get out of the car with me and we start walking across and we get about 10, 15 yards away from the car and all of a sudden I hear this voice from the top of the hill. It's a national park ranger going, get back in your car. There are bears over there. Get back in your car. And at that moment, I'm thinking, I'm a moron. I can't outrun a bear. And I'm outside of the thing that's going to protect me. And so I'm like, come on, girls, they're bears. We've got to get back in the car. So we get back in the car. Uncomfortable thought number two, what we chase in this life can turn out to be destructive. Paul said it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Is he saying money is evil? No. Is he saying if you have money that you're evil? No. But he is saying if that is the chase of your life, if your life is characterized by anything other than a chase for him, then he's on top of the hill going, stop, it's destructive, it's going to destroy you. The choices that you're making down this path, turn around, get back on the path, because if you chase after me, I've got blessing and protection and opportunity and you get to live life the way you were designed to live it. And the enemy's not going to rob you. 
Solomon's ultimate conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is chase after God, fear God, and keep His commands. For this is for all humanity. What is our reason for writing? At the end of the day, what should be propelling us through this life? For what reason were we made? Our reason for writing is to fear Him. That's what I'm designed to do. Fear God. Ha Elohim. And keep His commandments. This injunction here at the end of the book is the practical result of the whole discussion He's had. In the midst of all that we face in this world, our internal and external pressures and challenges and complexities and struggles and temptations, he says, one duty remains plain and unchanging. Fear God and keep his commands. Now, when we hear the word fear, what do we automatically think? Uh, trepidation, anxiety, uh, frightened, danger, unpleasant. Fearing God in the Bible, an incredibly important concept for us to grasp as we close. While fear can certainly bring about terror or dread the old testament use of fear often indicates awe and reverence to fear god is to express loyalty to him and faithfulness to his covenant and those who fear god as we look at their examples in scripture they trust him and then are obedient in his commands and when they fear him guess what they receive they receive his protection and his wisdom and his blessing. The fear of God is often evoked in response to God's holiness. You know, the writer in Psalm 111, he describes this, uh, this, this, this God who his name as holy and awesome. The, the, the Hebrew word there for awesome is, is Nora. It's a form of Yara, which means to fear. The biblical writer there is saying, God, your name is holy and awesome and fearful. It also parallels fear and obedience in Scripture. Remember Abraham and Isaac. It describes Abraham's obedience to sacrifice Isaac as fear of God. So we find fearing God here as this imperative, as this command, urging the reader to have a reverent attitude to God, to honor Him, to respect Him, and as a response of that fear, to keep His commands. It's not two separate things. They are combined together. Maybe a better wording for us to comprehend is we fear God by protecting His commands. So what's our reason? Our reason for writing through this life is to fear God, to honor Him, to know Him as the awesome, holy, just Creator, sustainer, holy, forgiving, loving, merciful God that He is. And flowing out of our quest to know Him is our response. Keep His commands. And how do we do that? In a very practical way, we open up this love letter that He's offered us so that we can understand who He is. We come into this place and we worship Him. We communicate with Him. We talk to Him. We express to Him what's on our heart. We allow our lives to be open to Him about how He wants to use us and our families in His mission here on this world. in this world. As a church, corporately, how does that look? When we look at Rock Point, if you're visiting, maybe you've never heard this before, but we kind of make a statement here at Rock Point that it is about loving God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ through receiving and equipping and impacting and sending. 
And so I'm thinking about even those four values that we so highly esteem here. And I'm thinking that impacting and sending, you know, they really flow out of the first two. Receive and equip. Because if I'm receiving God, as I walk into His presence, just as I am, and I'm discovering more about Him, I'm equipping myself with His Word. You know what happens in my heart? My heart begins to transform and His ways become my ways. And now I'm wanting to impact for Him and I'm wanting to be sent out by Him and I'm wanting to help others be sent out by Him. Those things flow out of me connecting with Him in such a way that I am receiving and being equipped. And so as a church... What does receiving and equipping look like for us? You know, it, it looks a variety of different ways. There's a list that I've put on the screen, but it's longer than that. Right. It has to do with connecting here in worship, maybe on Saturday night. Maybe you've got some friends who are disconnected from church. And what you would say to them is, you know what? Are you thinking I know they wouldn't come on a Sunday morning? That's their time to sleep in. That's one of their only times. But on Saturday night, I could maybe invite them to dinner and then come hang out or come hang out and go to dinner together and allow them to experience. God. Maybe it's just coming here as a part of your corporate worship on Sunday morning. Maybe it's connecting in a small group. We've got two small groups this month that are starting in Wellington. Two to three that are starting in Lantana. They are exploding. Our, our small group structure is stronger than it's ever been before. Not because of leadership like me, but because we've got leaders, you, who are out there going, you know what, we are going to make sure that we make much of him in our community. And we want more and better disciples all throughout. the. And we know the better way to do that is as we grow larger in this church, which we will because we want to reach more people and send more people out. We've got to stay smaller where we are connecting in smaller communities together, understanding what he has for us and loving each other and all that that means while we're in community. That is practically working through how we are receiving and being equipped. But you know what? It also is all the other ways that we offer that in our church, whether it's in specific children's programs or student ministry options or men's events or women's options or I mean, the list is so full. There's a ton of stuff out there. It's in your worship folder. It's there. Things for the family that we offer. Ron and I have both been on staffs before where what, what, what typically happens is in a church, a lot of the time is they look at the calendar and go, okay, well, here was the calendar. Now, okay, let's see how, where do we put those things again this year? And it just kind of replicates what you've always done. You know what we do here? I don't know if you know this. They kind of peel back the screen a little bit. We kind of come together and we go, okay, let's erase everything off and decide how are we going to make much of him and equip and empower the people that show up here to make much of him and to know him more. What could that look like? And sometimes it looks the same and sometimes it looks different and sometimes it's a different time of the year and sometimes, you know, who knows? But that's how we want to do his work here, to be receptive of how we are going to know him and make him known. And so as family ministry grows and expands in this church and we offer family camp, Jim and Michelle Miller are out there in the foyer today. You stumble over them when you walk through the doors. They're at a camp called Soto that we've gone to several years in the past. This year, the camp is ours to program and own and kind of do what we want to with the families that choose to come. And I was just sitting here on the front row thinking this morning, how cool would it be if we had at least 40 families that said, you know what? Yeah, we're going to go do family camp together. You know what we're going to do when we get there? It's going to be a great time for us to just kind of be 
and not worry about doing. But it's also going to be a great time for us to come back together again and go, you know what? This is what we said in January. And now it's July. Are we still aligned? Are we still together? Are we still focused in on who he's called our family to be in this world for 2013? What's the fall going to look like? How are we going to live? See, those are the moments that we want to create and give you opportunity for. And whether it's a special time for you and your daughter whenever we do the family, whenever we do the father-daughter dance next month, or whether or not it's a father-son retreat, or whether it's other types of opportunities that we offer, the reality is we're not going to do them just to fill up a calendar. We want to do things throughout the course of the year, whether it's studying in depth in Scripture in a class sitting knee-to-knee together, or whether it's on a zip line going through the mountains in Arkansas that are going to make much of him and invite as many people as we can along for the ride as we chase hard after him. That's what Rock Point's going to be about. And the question is, are you ready to jump in on that? Because you're going to miss a lot of it if we don't fix this problem. Because we can leak away 2013 faster than we felt 2012 went. Will you close your eyes with me for a minute? In reflection, how are you going to fill 2013? Are you leaking minutes? (laughs) God would like to exchange that leaky sippy cup this year for his cup that will pour your life out for his purposes by making the most of every opportunity because he's going to give you and me everything that we need. God, I pray we would end this time next week sensing more contentment than we've ever had. Because we understand the alignment of our lives this week has been to you. And that we are chasing hard after you. And that we're drinking from your cup. God, may your Holy Spirit whisper into our ear each time we begin to take for granted or waste away what you've given us. God, may we make much of you in 2013. In Jesus' name.